Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the third in a series of four Terra Lectures in American Art. This series is sponsored by the Terra Foundation for American Art, which is dedicated to fostering exploration, understanding, and enjoyment of the visual arts of the United States for both national and international audiences. In collaboration with the Department of the History of Art at Oxford and Worcester College, the Foundation grants an annual fellowship to a leading scholar in American art. This year, the Terra Visiting Professor is Emily C. Burns. My name is Jeff Batchen, and I am the head of the History of Art Department at the University of Oxford. Our thanks go to the Terra Foundation and to Torch for hosting this series as part of their online events in the Humanities Cultural Program, one of the founding stones for the future Stephen A. Schwartzman Center for the Humanities. Throughout this evening's lecture, if you have any questions, please feel free to type, type them in the YouTube chat box below and we will do our best to answer as many of them as part of the session. We are delighted that this lecture will be introduced and moderated by Professor James Smalls. Dr. James Smalls is Professor and Chair of Visual Arts at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Smalls holds degrees from UCLA in Ethnic Arts and in Art History. He has taught at Rutgers University, Columbia University, and the University of Paris. His work as an art historian focuses on the intersections of race, gender, and queer sexuality in the art and visual culture of the 19th century, as well as the art and visual culture of the Black diaspora. He is the author of Homosexuality and Art from 2003 and The Homoerotic Photography of Carl Van Vechten, Public Face, Private Thoughts from 2006. He's also published essays in journals like American Art, Third Text, Art Journal, Art Criticism, and Freeze Magazine. Particularly foundational for the theme of this lecture are Small's essays, Racial Antics in Late 19th Century French Art and Popular Culture, which appeared in the anthology, Blacks and Blackness in European Art of the Long 19th Century, published in 2014, and Race as Spectacle in Late 19th Century French Art and Popular Culture, which was published in French Historical Studies in 2003. Smalls is currently completing a book entitled Pharrell Benga, African Muse of Modernism. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome James this evening. And now James, I'll hand over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff, for that wonderful uh, introduction. Uh, it is great to be here today uh, and uh, a virtual welcome to uh, those who are watching. Um, it is my pleasure to introduce Emily Burns. Uh, Emily is an associate professor of art history at Auburn University and a scholar of transnational exchange in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In 2018, she published Transnational Frontiers, the American West in France with the University of Oklahoma Press and has a forthcoming anthology co-edited with Alice M. Rudy Price uh, titled Mapping Impressionist Painting in Transnational Context uh, to be published with Rutledge, you know, uh, Rutledge Press. Uh, during her tenure as the Terra Foundation for American Art 
visiting professor in the Department of History of Art at the University of Oxford and a visiting fellow at Worcester College. Professor Burns is completing her book manuscript from which today's talk comes. Uh, and that manuscript is entitled Performing Innocence, Cultural Belatedness, and U.S. Art in Fin de Siècle, Paris. So, Emily, please take it away. Thank you so much, James. And thank you, Jeff, as well, uh, for the introductions. Thank you to everyone for joining us today. I also want to thank the archivists who have very generously scanned primary source material for me during the COVID era and that have really enabled this project to grow, especially from the Anacostia Community Museum, the Buffalo and Erie County Public Library, the Butler Library at Columbia, the American Art Museum and National Portrait Gallery Library, the Ohio History Connection, and the University of Illinois Archives. Um, all of um, this effort has supported this research in a time of so many closures. Competing constructions of Black U.S. identities were performed in Fondesiècle Paris. One paradigm was framed by Blackface minstrel shows, which circulated caricatures of Blackness that when they were regularly held by one of the US artist clubs in Paris as photographed at left. The other curated by Black intellectuals for the Palace of the Social Economy in the Paris Exposition Universelle of 1900 countered primitivizing stereotypes with narratives of African-American progress seen in the display at right. As this talk will argue, in spite of these polarized narratives, these two performances of Black U.S. identities in Paris both participated in and bolstered the larger ongoing transnational discourse that imagined and constructed ideas of U.S. naivete, cultural innocence and belatedness that I'm framing in this lecture series. Both of these displays centered on immaturity, but in distinct terms and with different goals. Both affirm theories of social evolution, though in different ways between belatedness and progress. Race operated as a fulcrum for performances of US cultural innocence in Paris. And these opposing frames of blackness as primitive on the one hand, and as incipient on the other, operated as what I think of as an innocence entanglement. This talk will proceed in four parts. I will share new research about minstrelsy in the US artist colony in Paris and contextualize the practice against the backdrop of French colonialism with its own mass culture images that were simultaneously imagining black Africans as primitive. The material from these first two sections is highly offensive and racist, and I share it in this public setting to critique it as I analyze how it operated in the U.S. colony in Paris to forward ideas of a U.S. primitive identity, and also think through how it linked with French visual culture itself using race to build a structure of difference, as James Smalls, Robin Mitchell, Tyler Stovall, Marcus Bruce, and others have argued. 
I will briefly consider how African-American artists intersected with these discourses in Paris, and then turn to the exhibit of American Negroes in 1900 with its revising tropes of youth and emergent culture, ending with a discussion of two Black U.S. women in Paris who took up these conversations about primitivism and progress. Newspaper reports document minstrel shows at the American Art Association of Paris annually from 1894 to 1899 and biannually from 1901 to 1907. Arising in the 1830s and circulating throughout the century, the fraught caricature of African-Americans presented in blackface minstrel shows entailed white performers darkening their flesh with burnt cork or polish, paired with white, wide, bright red lips drawn around their mouths while singing and dancing to minstrel songs. These shows were presented first in the club headquarters in Montparnasse, and then in several theaters nearby and across Paris, including the Nouveau Theater, the Theater Montparnasse, and the Theater Marigny, here photographed noting the arrondissement. The full-length performances of what Smalls has productively labeled, quote, racial antics, included multiple acts pairing songs and comic skits in keeping with typical minstrel show structure. A minstrel show in 1903 centered around plantation melodies, a frequent theme that problematically presented plantation life as though idyllic. These spectacles were organized to earn money for the club's activities and facilities, which included a clubhouse featuring frequent exhibitions and social events for Anglo artists in Paris. On December 10, 1898, the AAAP Minstrel Show was performed at the Nouveau Theatre on the Rue Blanche in the 9th arrondissement, which had a capacity of about 1,000 viewers. This was also the day the Treaty of Paris was signed between the United States and Spain on the Quai d'Orsay, which ended the War of 1898 and established the United States' first overseas colonial possessions. The Paris edition of the New York Herald reported that Senator Cushman Kellogg Davis from Minnesota participated in both events. Although the paper also reported that the negotiations went late into that evening. So perhaps Davis did not make the show by 8.45 as intended. Yet this concurrence between the minstrel shows projections of black evolutionary delay and belatedness and rising imperialist discourse that privileged white governments in building US empire is suggestive. While inscribing a race hierarchy that justified US expansion, minstrelsy's antics also deflected attention away from that power grab, which was largely unpopular in France. Reports about the minstrel show offered details about the show's length of five hours, and the numbers of participants, um, 50 to 60 young men as performers. On this occasion, US architecture students dominated the show, joined by dozens of students working in painting, drawing, and sculpture. Not all were from the United States. Performers included two Australian painters, a British illustrator, and immigrants long resident in the United States, although originally from Italy and Germany. The show featured newly published minstrel songs from printed sheet music with both caricatured photographs of blackface performers, uh, which you can see at left, and exaggerated drawn caricatures of black figures that you can see at right. The show featured um, 
sorry, I went back a line. Uh, French-born U.S. architect Edward Frere Champigny, then training at the École de Beaux-Arts under Victor Laloux, performed the song, I Don't Like No Cheap Man. While the song has a male narrator, the frequent quoting of a Miss Simpson invited Champigny as a performer to adopt gender bending. Two other architecture students who knew each other at Columbia before moving to Paris were at the center of this performance. Kenneth Mackenzie Murchison from New York played Mr. Tambo and William G. Tashau from Kentucky played Mr. Bones. Tashau presented um, The Warmest Baby in the Bunch, the Ethiopian ditty that you see the sheet music for on the right by George Cohen, while Murchison performed Keep Away from Emmeline by John Stromberg and Harry B. Smith. The sheet music reinforces the racist caricatures exported into the club's headquarters and Paris theaters through lyrics and music. The music plays on exaggeration. The songs have dramatic narrative lyrics, often recited or sung with imagined and caricatured dialect, upbeat tones that linger in the ear, and they are speedily paced. And right now on the chat screen, my Torch colleagues will offer a link to a modern recording of I Don't Like No Cheap Man, if you're interested to listen later to hear one of the racist soundscapes that I'm working to analyze in my larger chapter. Musicologist Matthew D. Morrison has used the term black sound, which he defines as the quote, legacies, sounds, and movements of African-American bodies, both real and imagined, on which blackface performance and popular entertainment were based. Thinking of such displays as scripts and what he calls an embodied production of sound, Morrison notes that the characteristic, quote, simplicity, derisiveness, and catchiness of minstrel songs became mapped onto an ontology of blackness as simple and thereby not equal to its white counterparts. Historian Sadia Hartman concurs that minstrelsy falsely, quote, constituted the African as childish and primitive. This translation between simple jingle and simple culture shaped these US projections in Paris. While blackface prevailed in these performances, it was occasionally mingled with redface. In April 1895, one number featured a quote, wild red Indian dance by an art student who assumed the name Man Afraid of Soap. Students sometimes donned such costumes and makeup for the famous Bal de Katzach in the Latin Quarter. In 1905, the minstrel show coincided with Buffalo Bill's Wild West on the Champ de Mars. In April, advertisements appeared in the newspaper side by side, as you see here. In dialogue with theories of evolution, late 19th century anthropological discourse declared both Black and Indigenous cultures as at an earlier state in development than white cultures. By foregrounding associations with these quote-unquote stereotypically, you know, primitive races, um, the U.S. colony in Paris manipulated French perceptions of U.S. character and culture. A 1907 article about U.S. expatriates in Paris printed this photograph, the only one I've found so far related to these clubs, um, labeled far from the old folks at home. The label references another popular minstrel song likely performed at the event, but takes on added resonance in the literal distance of the US artists from their homes. The performers sit on the ground at center, some in blackface with uniform deep black, creating a singular typology of blackness. 
a figure to the right of center, and I'll bring my cursor there, here, um, wears a mask shaped as a cylinder with thick white outlined eyes and projections emerging from the mask that make the figure appear other than human. Tuxedo clad white men, either club members in the chorus or attendees, build a literal hierarchy as they tower over the blackface figures. My ongoing research on this organization has identified about 1,000 members between 1890 and 1914, with membership from across the United States, although mostly from the eastern seaboard, north and south alike. An article in 1901 numbered AAAP membership at 400 that year. Documents of the minstrel show records I've collected uh, show about 100 individuals performing, and I offer a list of artists I've been able to identify based on these records, although a lot of the names are lost in racist pseudonyms. Most of the artist performers were operating as amateurs, producing an effect that doubled the construct of a projected U.S. primitivism in Paris. Handbooks targeting these amateur minstrels published in the 1890s might have shaped the artist's engagement with the genre. This implied and ironically trained amateurism extended to projections about American art as reviewers explicitly linked the shows with American art practice. In 1895, one paper reported on a piece in the minstrel show called the, quote, Dark Town Art Academy. One viewer of the 1898 show also thought that the artists had written the songs that they performed, interpreting those as an indicator of the, quote, versatility and ingenuity of these young American students. As the New York Herald's Paris edition declared in 1898, quote, those who had come prepared to be lenient to the young amateurs went away saying, oh, these young fellows can do anything. This tension between amateur and professional and the triumphant amateur framed the operations of the minstrel shows and the reception linking naivete and its possibilities with US art practice in Paris. The shows operated as social events. In 1895, the American Register announced, quote, the American colony turned out in full force to witness the entertainment. In 1898, General Horace Porter and Sir Edmund Monson, who were then the US and British ambassadors to France, attended the show. Other attendees were members of the Paris-based art world, such as Jean-Charles Cazin and Mary Cazin, and Jean-Paul Laurence, who taught some of the US painters in Paris, including Henry Ossoa Tanner in the 1890s. The interwoven relationship between U.S. businessmen in Paris who funded the AAAP is most clear in the list of men who acted as the welcoming committee for the 1903 minstrel show, which was also held at the Nouveau Theater. These included M. Percy Pexato of the Equitable Life Assurance Company, Sidney Veitz, hat exporter, Charles F. Green of Spalding and Company Jewelers, Francis Kimball and George A. Ostheimer of shipping and export companies, um, and uh, Herman and John Harges, who were both US bankers bankrolling the activities of the club. In 1903, the American Register touted, quote, the house was crowded with elegantly dressed Americans and others, and there was an impressive display of jewels. This event reverberated back to the United States, making news in Philadelphia and Chicago. 
So blackface participated not only in the construction of a US artist's colony, but also shaped the identity of the wider um, uh, colony in Paris and also back at home. These events were not singular aberrations. Rather, they were a sustained and repeated part of the organization's program. The collective acts reaffirmed an exclusive white collective US culture by establishing their own authority to undertake such race performance. As cultural studies scholar Eric Law argues, minstrelsy reveals as much about dialectic definitions of whiteness as it does about blackness in what he defines as a quote, simultaneous drawing up and crossing of racial boundaries. Lot sees minstrelsy as quote, dipping into Bohemia, which parallels how many US artists navigated Parisian culture, which we were talking about next week. And indeed, by playing primitive in blackface, US artists shed the Puritan gravity that we were talking about last week, using race performance to transgress that identity, while capitalizing on ideas of US cultural innocence of a different sort in Paris. Likewise, the gender bending I noted earlier enabled white male US art students to acceptably and temporarily break out of social norms as performing in blackface reified whiteness, playing as female or as an effeminate dandy reinvigorated masculinity. As some minstrels characters, especially Zip Kuhn, parody the black dandy to denigrate black communities' desires for social mobility, the performance of these figures in France echoes US artists' cultural anxieties about their own hopes for upward mobility in the French art world. When presented in Paris, as one newspaper declared, quote, such as only Americans can produce, Blackface exported menonymic constructions of US culture as exotic um, for foreign audiences. But these were not the first minstrel shows in Paris. As Smalls has traced, minstrelsy arrived in France first via the United Kingdom in the 1840s with US performers arriving in the late 1850s. In 1859, Le Monde Illustré reproduced a page of engravings related to a minstrel show then in Paris. The scene is framed by two caricatured black putti, one with exaggerated lips and nose and the other with dense curly hair, carrying a banner to announce les bouffes américaines, or kind of comedic clowns. A US flag drapes at left over a box of vignettes, which include a scene of nine musicians seated in a semicircle at top, and this is the standard um, minstrel um, stage structure two images of dancing figures flanking a central vignette, and four figures playing stodgy Puritans at the bottom. At center, a figure with his face in profile to reveal exaggerated physiognomy plays the banjo. Neither his body nor his instrument are contained within the frame. His feet project outward towards the viewer and below toward the Puritans, and the banjo overlaps the ongoing cakewalk at right. This juxtaposition of Puritan and blackface constructions reinforces the differences between these identity performances, though as between last week and this, the US community in Paris adopted both to construct narratives of cultural uniqueness through fraught and problematic tropes of innocence. Smalls has contextualized blackface in Third Republic France when it became particularly popular as a tool to frame anxieties about Frenchness and xenophobia. 
He describes these, quote, visual shenanigans of racialized spectacle as tools to render otherness visible. Minstrelsy operated in tandem with colonialism by exoticizing the black body in France, where, as Mitchell has recently argued, quote, blacks could not and should not be a part of the French body politic, a system of exclusion was built. As Ray Beth Gordon, Janine Przblitzki, Dana Hale, and many others have argued, French imperial projects designed narratives of Blacks from Africa as primitive, which justified colonialism. And I show you here a map of French West Africa uh, by 1914. The Dahomey Kingdom, heir to the Oyo Empire, had been annexed as a French colony in 1894. In the 1890s, Dahomeans were exhibited in Paris in human zoos like the Jardin d'Acclimatation, where Parisians would observe so-called primitive people to build a sense of difference. A colonial village with Dahomeans on display in traditional dress was constructed at the Universal Exposition in 1900, and that's uh, what I show you in these two stereo views. Um, and the space featured rustic straw-roofed huts, roughly stuccoed architecture, and other elements of a perceived primitive culture to justify French colonial oversight. Primitivist caricatures based on minstrelsy circulated perniciously in French visual culture. In evolutionary narratives applied to human society, the cakewalk, for example, became a symbol, as Gordon argues, of, quote, black regressive traits. Luria reproduced this caricature by George Edward that literalizes this reversion with the title, quote, how the Parisian insists on demonstrating that we descend from the ape. The caricature traces three pairs performing the cakewalk, leaning their bodies backward while prancing forward, white figures at left, black or black face figures at center, and monkeys at right, their curled tails echoing the ribbon shape edging the box. The image implies a social evolution that places white copyists of the dance farther along in progress from the animal forms than the black figures. Ideas of the cakewalk as evolutionary regression framed the perceptions of Americans as primitive when they performed in blackface. Other minstrel shows in Paris likely propelled US artists in the AAP to host their own. They would have observed that such displays had currency in Bohemian Paris and with elite audiences. Um, and here I show you a painting of a minstrel show by Jean-Francois Raffelli that um, James Smalls has written about at length, um, painted in 1887, presenting black figures as curiosities for French observers, overlapping with practices of race display in the human zoos. The performers are carefully confined in a space between the audience in the background and the viewer, and color operates suggestively. Most of the viewers are white and wear white, and the ground separating the performers from the viewers is literally ensconced in strokes of whiteness. While Raffelli renders ambiguous whether these are black or blackface performers, illustrating how, as Smalls argues, quote, blackness becomes a floating signifier, a malleable trope in Paris, the AAAP photograph renders the blackface explicit. Here, the pairing of white tuxedo clad and blackface figures on stage blurs the boundaries that Raffaele polices. 
Yet, as in Raffaele's painting, we remain distanced from the figures on the stage, here with a blinding reflection of whiteness reflecting on the wood. In the context of popular performance in France, like the one Raffaele relates, French viewers' primitivist eye was primed to receive blackface as a claim to primeval identity. How did African-American artists' entry into Paris intervene in these cultural conversations? African-Americans were generally not welcomed at the U.S. artist clubs in Paris. Mita Warwick Fuller was denied admission to her prearranged lodgings at the American Girls Club in autumn 1899 by the director, Miss Ackley, whom the artist recalled in a later interview in a transcript to which I'm grateful to Renee Ader for sharing with me. Um, uh, Ackley told her, quote, I would hate to see you ill-treated, discriminated against, and there are Southern girls here in the club and they may not show you welcome, end quote. Fuller did exhibit at the club um, in 1902 and showed her dynamic sculpture, The Wretched, at the Salon of the Société Nationale de Beaux-Arts in 1903. William A. Harper, whose rural French landscape is at right, was denied membership at the AAP in 1905 when 13 club members objected to his inclusion. Yet Tanner was a member of the AAP from the summer of 1892. A photograph from his papers depicts him seated among fellow club members in the garden in front of the AAP's first site, and he's located here, um, labeled, uh, labeled himself as figure five. He exhibited at least 15 times between 1896 and 1922 and was a staple in reports on AAP activities and events. Unsurprisingly, he does not appear to have attended the minstrel shows, though we might imagine them to have been almost inescapable at the club through the racist sheet music, the soundscape of racial antics in the rehearsals, of the offensive lyrics and jarring tones of the music echoing in the club quarters, a taunt to the artist who was fastidiously seeking equality in France. Several scholars working on blackface and music have noted a recurrent, quote, terror that minstrelsy incited for African-Americans as it restaged white mastery even after emancipation. Tanner's paintings of the period, like Daniel in the Lion's Den, which he exhibited at the Salon des Artistes Français in 1896, inflect biblical stories that draw on torment and that reveal a sense of self and interiority. Art historians Dewey Mosby and Norris Frank Woods have read Daniel as an extension of Tanner himself. Adding minstrelsy to other injustices imposed on the artist, one imagines how the growling sounds from the prowling lions pervade and echo in the basement prison, like the echoes of minstrel songs. Daniel offers a spiritual quietude and interiority that counters the noisy antics of minstrelsy. In the same way, Tanner's faith, work ethic, and imaginative art practice supersede the racist structures he navigated, a metaphorical den of hungry lions. There is a thickness to the painted surface um, in the, and you can see the kind of texture and impasto um, in the image on the left, a protective and insulating paint, building an impenetrability in response to the thick clubbishness of the Paris art world around him. Exhibited again at the Palais de Beaux-Arts at the Exposition in 1900, Daniel and the Lion's Den won a gold medal. 
There, Tanner's painting offered a bookend to the exhibit of American Negroes in the Palace of Social Economy, which was just a 10 minute walk from the Grand Palais. And on the map on the screen, I've starred where Tanner's painting was and where the ex exhibition we're now gonna talk about um, was installed. This exhibition intercepted the stereotypes of blackness built both by the US colony and by French exoticized displays in Paris. With a small congressional budget of $15,000, it was organized over a five-year or five-month period by Thomas Calloway, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Daniel Murray to be placed among sociological studies and humanitarian projects. It comprised about one quarter of the display, and you can see the layout of the room at the right with boxes around this um, uh, exhibition. And it was actually in the same room as the Equitable Life Assurance Company display, um, bring, likely bringing in AAP supporter Pexato, whom I mentioned earlier, as involved with the minstrel shows. The exhibit of American Negroes inhabited only a 12, square, 12 foot square space with a few adjacent vitrines, but the exhibit offered a massive array of well-organized material. Its linear structure, order, and balance immediately counters the sloppy and unwieldy caricature of African Americans built by minstrelsy. By refusing to define Blackness in any singular way, it revealed the limitations of the stereotype. Further, its manifold representations of complex ideas of Blackness could not be contained by a single photograph. Another photograph looking towards the entrance of the room just to the right of the exhibition includes bookcases, which I'm pointing out here, um, which are I think part of the exhibit. Um, and then in the photograph on the right, um, looking down the hallway, um, the image only hints at these cases to the left, but in here there were small dioramas that I'll talk about later, which were placed. In addition, many parts of the exhibition, especially photographs and written texts, were in bound volumes that aren't captured in the renderings of the space, although all, or almost all are extant in the Library of Congress collections. Together, the display built a cumulative intermedia set of arguments with material compiled from black colleges, boarding schools, and businesses, and it won a grand prize medal, as well as 15 individual medals. Scholars in the history of photography and in African-American studies, including Deborah Willis, David Levering Lewis, Mabel Wilson, Sean Michelle Smith, Laura Wexler, Judith Davidov, and many others, have shown that the exhibit's accumulated arguments operated on multiple visual and discursive levels. The multivalent display did not have a unified message. For instance, ideological directives from Black intellectuals like Booker T. Washington and Du Bois do not align. And there are other competing threads I'm happy to talk through with you in the Q&A. Yet, many of these distinct threads cohere in their shared attempts to counter the caricatures of Blackface and of primitivism, as one reviewer put it, to quote, correct erroneous ideas which may have gained currency, um, end quote, and in their articulation of their own cultural youth in order to do so. The concept of the new Negro, which emerged in this period and became codified in the 1920s, drew attention to the idea of burgeoning culture. 
Calloway's ideas emphasize the display of African-American, quote, development and possibilities. And he summarizes the exhibition's attention to, and here again, I quote from him, advancement made with regard to domestic and educational life as a result of the newborn aspirations of the race. Du Bois's claims about the role of candidness in the exhibition also reinforce these ideas. He summarized it as a, quote, honest, straightforward exhibit of a small nation of people picturing their life and development without apology or gloss, and above all, made by themselves. This language, Calloway's advancement and newborn uh, aspirations, and Du Bois's honest, straightforward, without apology or gloss, underscore narratives of birth, youth, incipient culture, directness, and unmediated imagery that paralleled the self-projections in the mostly white U.S. colony in Paris. These ideas echo comments from contemporaries I shared with you at the first lecture, such as from Gilbert Parker, who claimed in 1891 that Americans as a whole see, quote, without the intervening veil of convention and tradition. The narratives the exhibition proposed about African-American culture, its progress, futurity, and origin stories drew on characteristics that paralleled and ultimately fueled wider cultural projections of the U.S. colony in Paris. So even as they're countering stereotypes of minstrel shows, as Smith observes, quote, disrupting essentialized narratives that depicted people of color as the uncivilized infants of human evolution, Many images traded in the same myths of US culture as youthful and in progress that were already circulating in France. Within the persuasive space of the display, images, charts, and texts fostered the youthful trajectory of Black culture in the Reconstruction era, arguing for a parallel reversal from the liability of belatedness to the asset of being new in formation and looking to the future. This narrative of directness, of origins and incipients, both subtly and overtly weaves through many of the objects on display. One of the sociological charts from the Atlanta University uses the color black to denote percentage of enslavement and green as symbolic of freedom to highlight the moment of 1865 as a key origin point. Many parts of the display focused on literacy and writing as a symbol of budding African-American education and cultural production. Um, for instance, another chart highlighted the decline of illiteracy following emancipation. Librarian of Congress, Daniel Murray, made a pamphlet listing 1,400 known books published by African-American authors, and 200 examples were on view in the exhibition. And one reviewer speaking in particular about this part of the display um, uh, noted that the display revealed how, quote, a people without a country and without favor um, undertook a literary practice. And this reviewer's tone suggests this idea, again, of culture and formation. Writing of literature published following emancipation, the author described it as the, quote, first literary utterance of the Negro who has been to school. It is also prophetic of what may be expected. It is the promise that authorship of a most interesting and valuable kind will develop in the course of the progressive life of the race, end quote.
Such literacy was underscored in the photograph of the reading nurse by Thomas Askew that I showed you last week. And I'll show you some other photographs. And as we go through them, think about um, the kind of array of variation in skin tone across the photographs itself a counter to the singularity of blackface. The exhibition included a set of framed mastheads of Black-owned newspapers, a chart and photographs of the planet in Richmond, Virginia being assembled and printed um, as ways to articulate burgeoning control over representation. Two, many of the photographs in Askew's Atlanta series depict young children. In one, three barefoot boys sit or lean against a faux rock in a portrait studio as though pausing from play. In a portrait of a young girl at right, Askew places her between two sculptures and holding an oversized picture book that seems to depict stone architecture. She is pensive and her social mobility is implied by her curiosity and the sumptuous fabrics which flank her. This focus on children underscored a projection of metaphorical cultural youth. Budding culture also emerged in representations of tutelage, such as in the transmission of knowledge in a piano lesson imagined in a wealthy black parlor at left, an echo of Tanner's paintings of instruction from the 1890s, to which we'll turn our attention next week. Some of Francis Benjamin Johnston's photographs from the Hampton School also use construction metaphorically to signal progress. In this one, three students, um, two Black and one Native American, working to model a space um, uh, imply an incipient development and futurity in their acts and in their compositional scaffolding of the figures. So through work, there will be progress. And it is this social mobility that minstrelsy sought to repress. These themes came to the fore in the dioramas valorizing education and progress in Black life, which were placed in those hallway vitrines I mentioned earlier. And I've been scouring for photographs, so if anyone happens to know if there are other photographs of these models, um, the only ones I've found are um, the one that I show you on the screen to the right. These models were made by painter Thomas Hunster and his students at the Washington DC Colored Public School on M Street. Hunster built an integrated arts curriculum which crossed fine art, manual and industrial arts, and across architecture and landscape drawing alike. Um, the models here are visible under the counter where they were displayed in um, the Pan American Exhibition in Buffalo. Um, and they were made with miniature figures of persons, schoolhouses, and surroundings, um, one visitor described. They traced for one reporter progress from, quote, the most primitive backwoods hut to the finely appointed and commodious colored high school building in Washington. Calloway lingers on this origin point, quote, a family of ex-slaves has just emancipated, just behind them are woods representing the darkness of slavery, and before them is a winding path leading into an unknown future. A baby signifies a mother's, quote, first joy of freedom, and the young boy, the character whose development is traced through these nine models, of course, grows to become the principal of the M Street School. The models frame the central role of education in enabling that progress, with the growing child a metaphor for the growth of African American culture. Extant reviews herald the models as a display of Black development after emancipation. 
fellow teacher and later principal of the M Street School, Anna Julia Cooper, a formerly enslaved person, celebrated the model's argument. In 1892, Cooper published a book called A Voice from the South by a Black Woman of the South, which was listed in Murray's pamphlet. And um, in a review of the exhibition, she described Hunster's models lingering on the last one as the quote, climax of the upward struggles of her people and the chasm bridged in the second generation along the shadowy path, end quote. Reinvigorating the trajectory of education and self-determination at the center of Hunster's models, Cooper later completed her doctorate at the Sorbonne in Paris, where she wrote a dissertation on French perceptions of enslavement after the French Revolution. In recounting the details of the contents and reception of the exhibition on the whole, Calloway lingered on the models, arguing that this would be the quote, most attractive feature of all. Building a hierarchy across the intermediate display that rendered the models the most legible and the most accessible, even more than the photographs, Calloway declared, quote, if thousands have looked at other features of the exhibit, tens of thousands have studied these models. Dramatic figures of uh, real life, they speak to the most ignorant visitor, end quote. So the primitivized ideas of blackness designed by the AAP minstrel shows built a cultural immaturity in Paris that was ironically matched by the incipient culture projected by parts of the exhibit of American Negroes. In the context between behavioral cues, or sorry, contest between behavioral cues linked with blackness, these projections in Paris were marked by paradoxical savvy. These competing ideas of innocence, primitive and incipient, suggest the layers and ruptures in constructions of U.S. culture on the Parisian stage. The ways in which these projections of U.S. Black identities in Paris contradict each other and yet still enforce a larger whole speaks to that complexity and ambivalence. The cases show how complex messages building and dismantling racial hierarchies emerge from the dialogic spaces across the city in performance and exhibition spaces. Um, and for further conversation on that, I hope that you will join um, the Birkbeck and Durham Centers for 19th Century Studies on Friday at 5 p.m. for another roundtable about race, gender, and intermediate art practice in Fundus Yecla Paris. And my torch colleagues will post the registration link in the chat bar. Now, while this competing set of cultural performances was largely bifurcated across these two groups in Paris, one individual, Agnes B. Moody, offers an exemplar of this innocence entanglement through her savvy adoption of identity markers in both spaces. Most days at the Paris Exposition in 1900, one could find Moody performing as an Aunt Jemima character, serving corn cakes in the corn kitchen, a thick shawl perpetually wrapped around her shoulders. This lunch bar was located in the agricultural annex about 20 minutes on foot from the exhibit of American Negroes. Offering free food made with corn, it was a ploy assertively trying to build a European export market for corn, then regarded largely as animal feed. The press circulated stories about it being Indian corn in particular as a uniquely American product, thus tracing a settler colonial export. 
It also more often circulated a fantasy image, which you see at left, of what the mini pavilion could have looked like, rather than what the lunch counter looked like that was actually installed, which you see on the right. Discussions of the display cultivated ideas of Americans as naive. The Syracuse Evening Herald reported, quote, while predicting some, quote, Yankee trick, the wily Parisian holds back while he warily watches his unsophisticated cousin, the provincial who has boldly accepted the proffered food. But of course, in the article, the French become, quote, willing to learn a good thing from the barbarians. The corn kitchen simultaneously cohered and parsed native, black, and white Americans as primitive. Moody and another unknown black woman representing the quote, typical mammy from the South as reported in the press, signified the agricultural labor so often centered in enslavement as well as larger narratives of servitude as they acted in accordance with the stock minstrel character. Some newspaper articles caricatured Moody's dialect and her disinterest in the wonders of the exposition, filling out readers' imaginations of her as a rural simpleton. But while Moody performed to stereotype in the corn kitchen, she was an activist, an intellectual, and a member of various clubs seeking race equality. Born in enslavement in Hagerstown, Maryland, she escaped with her family to Canada in the early 1850s and spent much of her adult life in Chicago. She was a second vice president of the National Association of Colored Women and was active in conversations to condemn lynching after the year after the exposition. When other black intellectuals Calloway, Du Bois, Cooper, and the artist Fuller convened in the US Pavilion in August 1900 for a dinner to celebrate Black Americans in Paris, Moody took her place among them. So she may have played primitive, but that social performance in white spaces effectively obscured the ways in which she was actually working for progress. Thank you for your attention. And I'd like to invite James Smalls to return to talk through this material. Thank you, Emily, for a really wonderful uh, paper. Um, I, I, and as you know, I've got, I have done research on minstrelsy and its reception in France, um, but not linking this American uh, uh, part of it, which I find very, very, uh, extremely, extremely interesting. Um, uh, I was just wondering, I, mean, I had a lot of questions as I was going through your, your, your talk, and one of them, um, uh, one of those has to do with the idea of, of um, the minstrel shows when the AAAP was uh, were conducting them. Was there any sort of documentation of sort of the individual shows, either you know, uh, in terms of someone writing about it or it recorded in some way? Uh, and the reason I ask that is because I, I sort of uh, parallel it with the, uh, for example, in France later on with the Folie Bergère, when you have all of these things that the, these kinds of uh, interesting um, shows that happened, but those were never really recorded. Uh, uh, you know, no one was sitting there actually, you know, giving critiques of them. Um, so I was just wondering uh, in terms of the context in which you're, you're looking at, you know, yeah. 
Thank you so much, James. Um, I love the synergies and overlaps between our interest in minstrelsy in France with your work on the Bohemian spaces, especially in Montmartre, um, and then this kind of um, sort of sub-community in another part of Paris happening simultaneously. Um, and I think the American case is so interesting because it in many ways, the US artist community in Paris tries to separate itself from that bohemian culture. Um, and so it's odd that there's this kind of synergy there. But um, to answer your question in terms of documentation, there isn't a kind of archive of the club in any one place, but since I've been working on this material, I've been assembling newspaper articles and also exhibition catalogs um, in individual artist papers. And that's how I've come to learn about the minstrel shows has um, been mainly through their reports in the newspapers. And I've been surprised to the extent to which people went through these kind of detailed discussions of actually what songs were performed, which members were participating. Um, there's a kind of rich um, archive that is starting to emerge from those newspaper reportings that have kind of enabled me to, to piece together in greater detail kind of what order things happened in and such. I also think that they may be linked with um, Columbia's Varsity Club. They started in 1894 to have an annual fundraiser show that wasn't necessarily minstrelsy, but just kind of theatrical performance. And Murchison, who I mentioned as um, playing Mr. Tambo in the 1898 show, um, he uh, was a student at Columbia then, and he was a musician who often performed um, in those shows and was a member of the banjo club at Columbia. And so I think that he was really instrumental in um, offering to club leadership ideas about what they could include in the performance um, and kind of how to put it together. Great, that's, that's really interesting. That's really, really interesting. I have a lot of questions, but I'm, I'm gonna let other people <laughs> question. I'm gonna read from the questions that we have here. Um, and I think the first question, I, you, you touched on it, but maybe you could elaborate on this. This is a question from Jane Gabin. Mm -hmm. uh, she writes, or yes, uh, Jane writes, uh, for instance, the American Girls Club turned away Metavoe Fuller. Was there a difference in the way Americans treated Blacks and the way they were treated by the French? Yeah, thank you, Jean. That's a great question. Yeah, I did mention Fuller's um, uh, kind of unwelcome at the uh, Girls Club in 1899. And incidentally or not, um, Ackley, uh, who was the directress, actually is documented as attending the AAP minstrel show a couple of months later. Um, and I do think that those examples, the case of Harper and the case of, um, of Fuller do suggest that there was a difference in um, kind of possibilities. Tanner's case is a really complicated one because he, there is another story that has been published a couple of times uh, that Guy Penny Dubois described Tanner wanting to have a position on a committee at an artist club in Paris and that nobody would vote for him. 
And this has always been assumed to be talking about the American Art Association of Paris. And I always thought that that didn't make sense to me because of the ways in which he's, as I mentioned, so deeply integrated into that other club and exhibiting there. And he's also on committees there. Um, and so what I think has happened is that um, Dubois's comment is actually about the Paris Society of American Painters, which is another US artist club in Paris that was formed around a generation, a kind of earlier generation of expat US artists whose main goal was to try to control which American paintings would be in the international exhibitions in Europe. And Tanner joined that organization. And I think that that's the space where he ultimately suffered um, uh, racism um, in, in that way. Um, and I think, so to get back to Jane's question, Tanner's also a really interesting figure because he has written some things that suggest that race did not make an impact on his art career in France. Um, but then he also has written about um, the kind of effects of racism um, on his life and progress. And so it's kind of uh, difficult to read between the lines, but certainly the fact that he expatriated to France and had his career there, I think, are tied to a sense of greater access um, in France in the art world than he would have had in the United States. Great. Thanks. Thanks for that. Uh, here's a question from uh, Kwabena Slaughter. Uh, the question is, Booker T. Washington is standing backstage in all of these stories. Why is his influence not being acknowledged? His photo is on the wall in that image on the right, right now. That's what, yeah. Yes. Yes, thank you for your question. Yeah, no, so Washington is appears in the exhibition and he also was involved in facilitating the Tuskegee display that is in the exhibition space. Um, and certainly his influence and ideas are um, underscored in many of the parts of the display. But in terms of the kind of official organization, the figures were Callaway and Du Bois and Murray. Um, and they're the ones who are listed in the um, kind of fair records, the official reports of the fair. Um, and um, Kwabena, your question um, gets at um, one of the kinds of nuances across the exhibition that scholars have traced, which is that there is a kind of emergent tension between Washington and Du Bois that come, becomes clear in this moment. They both see education as crucial to the development of uh, progress for African-American culture, but for Washington, he is invested in industrial schools that are teaching skills like manual skills that can be um, uh, kind of wielded and taught. Whereas Du Bois is much more interested in promoting a kind of liberal arts education model where students are studying in all fields. Um, and I think that what uh, happens in the parts of the exhibition, and scholars have traced this in greater detail, um, between the um, materials related to Tuskegee and the materials, for instance, from Atlanta, um, are that um, you end up with like two very different ideas about education um, and labor and kind of mental labor, physical and mental labor. Thank you for your great question. And this is a, another question that relates to, uh, to what you were just saying. Uh, it's a question from Amanda Burden. Uh, Amanda says, I suspect the Tuskegee dioramas are rooted in the models for which you are searching. 
That's an interesting question. And I'd like to talk to you more, Amanda, about that. So the Tuskegee photographs, there are five of them that were um, made by um, William Shepard, uh, who was from Minnesota. And there's only two of them digitized at the Library of Congress's website, but I've seen all of them. And one of my students this semester is working on um, her uh, paper on those photographs in particular. And um, those are most of the photographs are representations of kind of industry. There's a lot of photographs of black laborers in the fields. Um, and I think um, kind of stylistically, they seem really interesting because they're basically a photograph of a bunch of photographs that are overlaying each other. Um, and so there's a kind of collage effect um, that really differentiates those from the rest. But the models that I mentioned were made in Washington, D.C. by the M Street School. And the narrative that emerges there is more based on this kind of progress from like the cabin to a kind of smaller home to um, the, the DC school itself. And I think about those models as more tied with Du Bois's ideals of um, furthering a kind of broader liberal arts education um, for black individuals. And I cut this for time, but Mita Fuller actually was asked by Calloway to repair those models, which were damaged in transit to Paris, um, which she did. And in 1907, she produced her own set of models for the uh, Jamestown Exposition. And there's actually 16 models. Um, and they share some elements with um, Hunster's models. And, uh, but interestingly, the origin point that she chooses is actually 1619 instead of 1865, which is Hunster's choice. Um, so I hope that that answers your question, but I'm happy to talk further with you about um, Tuskegee and um, the DC models. Great. I have some information here that Amanda was talking specifically about the 1940s dioramas. The 1940s? Yes, yes. Okay, yeah. I'll have to yeah. uh, check on that. Problem. So, um, Emily, uh, so this, this topic is really actually quite large. Uh, and I'm sure that you're discovering things all the time, or are you? I mean, are you uh, still on the lookout for more and more um, information and imagery from this, this, this sort of cultural transplantation and 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 its sort of reception and it's uh uh yeah i mean it just seems wonderfully rich in terms of uh and wonderfully expansive um even though it's a part of your project it seems like it's a whole project in and of itself that could develop even even further yes this happens to me all the time, James. Every project seems to mushroom into what could be its own book for sure. Right. Um, one of the things that I've been trying really hard to do with this material, especially because there's been so much written about the exhibition of American Negroes, is to try to kind of pull the threads that, that are um, a kind of thread that hasn't yet been addressed and to kind of put it in closer dialogue with the US colony in Paris in this way through, through minstrelsy. But yes, I'm still looking for um, kind of references to the minstrel shows. And then um, as I was working on this chapter again recently was when I came across the figure of Agnes Moody who kind of emerged um, 
in both the literature on the um, dinner that was held in August in the pavilion. And I was initially kind of surprised that she was there because I had recognized her name from reading about the corn kitchen. And so that kind of led me to try to learn more about her. And I think that she's a kind of iconic figure for um, the ways in which she is um, using these stereotypes um, in really effective and savvy ways. And so I think she's also someone I'd like to learn more about. I'm really glad you said that because I, I, I was wanting more when you, <laughs> when you gave your, your paper on that. So that's wonderful to, to, to know that you're, you're interested in expanding that because I think that's a really rich and wonderful topic as well. So um, I think we're um, close to time here. Uh, and mm -hmm. so I want to thank everyone out there for uh, sending us your questions. And I'm sorry uh, if we were not able to get to, uh, to answer uh, all your questions. Um, I also want to take this opportunity to thank Emily for her thought-provoking lecture this evening and also Torch for hosting our event um, today. So, the evening for you, it's the afternoon for me. <laughs> but um, thank you also uh, uh, to all our viewers at home for watching as well. Uh, and please join us next uh, for next week's event, uh, which is the fourth and final in the Terra Lecture Series on Wednesday, March 10th at 5 p.m. That's GMT, UK time. Uh, and Emily will be joined by Alistair Wright, Associate Professor in the History of Art at the University of Oxford, affiliated with St. John's College. Uh, so we hope you will be able to join us then. Uh, and so thank you once again for joining us. Have a good day, the rest of the day. Bye. Mm -hmm.